You're listening to Mysterious Mountains, a production of the West Virginia Humanities Council, where together we explore the imaginary landscape of West Virginia through genre fiction and folklore. In Britain, really the sort of London Metropolitan Police Force wasn't established until 1829, and then the detective police force wasn't until the 1840s. So it wasn't really until the mid-19th century that there was even such a thing as, as a detective. This episode, I'm joined by Dr. Lynn Linder of West Virginia Wesleyan College in Buckhannon, who specializes in 18th and 19th century Gothic fiction and also teaches a course on detective fiction. She'll walk us through some of the literary origins of both genres and talk about some of the ways that this episode's story mixes them both. But first, the mystery. West Virginia Humanities Council presents Uncle Abner by Melville Davison Post The Riddle Read by Kyle Warmack. I have never seen the snow fall as it fell on the night of the 17th of February. It had been a mild day with a soft, stagnant air. The sky seemed about to descend and enclose the earth, as though it were a thing which it had long pursued and had now got into a corner. All day it seemed thus to hover motionless above its quarry, and the earth to be apprehensive like a thing in fear. Animals were restless, and men, as they stood about and talked together, looked up at the sky. We were in the county seat on that day. The grand jury was sitting, and Abner had been summoned to appear before it. It was the killing of old Christian Lance that the grand jury was inquiring into. He had been found one morning in his house, bound into a chair. The body sat, straining forward, death on it, and terror in its face. There was no one in the house but old Christian, and it was noon before the neighbors found him. The tragedy had brought the grand jury together and had filled the hills with talk, for it left a mystery unsolved. This mystery that Christian sealed up in his death was one that no man could get a hint at while he was living. What had the old man done with his money? He grazed a few cattle and got a handsome profit. He spent next to nothing. He gave nothing to anyone, and he did not put his money out to interest. It was known that he would take only gold in payment for his cattle. He made no secret of that. The natural inference was that he buried this coin in some spot about his garden, but idle persons had watched his house for whole nights after he had sold his cattle and had never seen him come out with a spade and young bloods, more curious, I think, than criminal, had gone into his house when he was absent and searched it more than once. There was no corner that they had not looked into, and no floorboard that they had not lifted, nor any loose stone about the hearth that they had not felt under. Once in conference on this mystery, somebody had suggested that the knobs on the andirons and the handles on the old highboy were gold, having gotten the idea from some tale and a little later, when the old man returned one evening from the gristmill, he found that one of these knobs on the andirons had been broken off. But as the thief never came back for the other, it was pretty certain that this fantastic notion was not the key to Christian's secret. It was after one of these mischievous searchings that he put up his Delphic notice when he went away, a leaf from a day-book, 
scrawled in pencil and pinned to the mantelpiece. Why don't you look in the cow? The idle gossips puzzled over that. What did it mean? Was the thing a sort of taunt? And did the old man mean that since these persons had looked into every nook and corner of his house, they ought also to have looked into the red mouth of the cow? Or did he mean that his money was invested in cattle, and there was the place to look? Or was the thing a cryptic sentence, like that of some ancient oracle, in which the secret to his hoarded gold was hidden? At any rate, it was certain that old Christian was not afraid to go away and leave his door open, and the secret to guard itself. And he was justified in that confidence. The mischievous gave over their inquisitions, and the mystery became a sort of legend. With the eyes of the curious thus on him, and that mystery for background, it was little wonder that his tragic death fired the country. I have said there was a horror about the dead man's face as he sat straining in the chair, and the thing was in truth a horror. But that word does not tell the story. The eyes, the muscles of his jaw, the very flesh upon his bones seemed to strain with some deadly resolution, as though the indomitable spirit of the man, by sheer determination, would force the body to do its will even after death was on it. And here there was a curious thing. It was not about the house, where his treasure might have been concealed, that the dead man strained, but toward the door, as though he would follow after someone who had gone out there. The neighbors cut him from the chair, straightened out his limbs, and got him buried. But his features, set in that deadly resolution, they could not straighten out. Neither the placidity of death, nor the fingers of those who prepared the man for burial, could relax the muscles or get down his eyelids. He lay in the coffin with that hideous resolution on his face, and he went into the earth with it. When the dead man was found, Randolph sent for Abner, and the two of them looked through the house. Nothing had been disturbed. There was a kettle on the crane and a crock beside the hearth. The ears of seed corn hung from the rafters trussed up by their shucks, the bean pods together in a cluster, the cakes of tallow sat on a shelf above the mantel. The festoons of dried apples and the bunches of seasoned herbs hung against the chimney. The bed and all the furniture about the house was in its order. When they had finished with that work, they did not know who it was that had killed old Christian. Abner did not talk, but he said that much, and the justice of the peace told all he knew to every casual visitor. True, it was nothing more than the county knew already, but his talk annoyed Abner. Randolph's a leaky pitcher, he said, and I think it was this comment that inspired the notion that Abner knew something that he had not told the justice. At any rate, he was a long time before the grand jury on this February day. The grand jury sat behind closed doors. They were stern, silent men, and nothing crept out through the keyhole. But after the witnesses were heard, the impression got about that the grand jury did not know who had killed old Christian, and this conclusion was presently verified when they came in before the judge. They had no indictment to find, and when the judge inquired if they knew of anything that would justify the prosecuting attorney in taking any further action on behalf of the state, the foreman shook his head. Night was descending when we left the county seat. Abner sat in his saddle like a man of bronze, his face stern, as it always was when he was silent, and I rode beside him. I wish I could get my Uncle Abner before your eye. He was one of those austere, deeply religious men who might have followed Cromwell, with a big iron frame, a grizzled beard, and features forged out by a smith. His god was the god of the Tishbite, 
who numbered his followers by the companies who drew the sword. The land had need of men like Abner. The government of Virginia was over the Alleghenies, and this great fertile cattle country, hemmed in by the far-off mountains like a wall of the world, had its own peace to keep. And it was these iron men who kept it. The fathers had got this land in grants from the king of England. They had held it against the savage and finally against the king himself, and the sons were like them. The horses were nervous. They flung their heads about and rattled the bit rings and traveled together like men apprehensive of some danger to be overtaken. That deadly stillness of the day remained, but the snow was now beginning to appear. It fell like no other snow that I have ever seen, not a gust of specks or a shower of tiny flakes, but now and then, out of the dirty, putty-colored sky, a flake as big as a man's thumbnail winged down and lighted on the earth like some living creature and it clung to the thing that it lighted on, as though out of the heavens it had selected that thing to destroy. And while it clung, there came another of these soft white creatures to its aid, and settled beside it, and another, and another, until the bare stem of the ragweed or the brown leaf of the beech tree snapped under the weight of these clinging bodies. It is a marvel how quickly this snow covered up the world, and how swiftly and silently it descended. The trees and fences were grotesque and misshapen with it. The landscape changed and was blotted out. Night was on us, and always the invading swarm of flakes increased until they seemed to crowd one another in the stagnant air. Presently Abner stopped and looked up at the sky, but he did not speak, and we went on. But now the very road began to be clogged with this wet snow. Great limbs broke at the tree trunks under the weight of it, the horses began to flounder, and at last Abner stopped. It seemed to be at a sort of crossroad in a forest, but I was lost. The snow had covered every landmark that I knew. We had been traveling for an hour in a country as unfamiliar as the Tartar steppes. Abner turned out of the road into the forest. My horse followed. We came presently into the open and stopped under the loom of a house. It was a great barn of hewn logs, but unused and empty. The door stood open on its broken hinges. We got down, took the horses in, removed the saddles, and filled the mangers with some old hay from the loft. I had no idea where we were. We could not go on, and I thought we would be forced to pass the night here. But this was not Abner's plan. Let us try to find the house, Martin, he said, and build a fire. We set out from the stable. Abner broke a trail through the deep snow, and I followed at his heels. He must have had some sense of direction, for we could not see. We seemed an hour laboring in that snow, but it could only have been a few minutes at the furthest. Presently we came upon broad steps and under the big columns of a portico. And I knew the place for an old abandoned manor house, set in a corner of worn-out fields in the edge of the forest, where the river bowed in under sheer banks a dozen fathoms down. The estate was grown up with weeds and the house falling to decay, but now when we came into the portico, a haze of light was shining through the fan-shaped glass over the door. It was this light that disturbed Abner. He stopped and stood there in the shelter of the columns, like a man in some perplexity. Now who could that be? He said, not to me, but to himself. And he remained for some time, watching the blur of light and listening for a sound. But there was no sound. The house had been abandoned. 
the windows were nailed up. Finally, he went over to the ancient door and knocked. For answer, there was the heavy report of a weapon, and a white splinter leapt out of a panel above his head. He sprang aside, and the weapon bellowed again, and I saw another splinter. And then I saw a thing that I had not noticed, that the door and the boards over the windows were riddled with these bullet holes. Abner shouted out his name and called on the man within to stop shooting and open the door. For some time, there was silence. Finally, the door did open, and a man stood there with a candle in his hand. He was a little old man with a stub of wiry beard, red grizzled hair, keen eyes like a crumb of glass, and a body knotted and tawny like a stunted oak tree. He wore a sort of cap with a broad fur collar fastened with big brass wolf-head clasps, and I knew him. He was the old country doctor, Storm, who had come into the hills from God knows where. He lived not far away, and as a child I feared him. I feared the flappings of his cape on some windy ridge, for he walked the country in his practice and only rode when the distances were great. No one knew his history, and about him the Negroes had conjured up every sort of fancy. These notions took a sort of form. Storm was a rival of the devil and jousted with him for the lives of men and beasts. He would work on a horse, snapping his jaws and muttering his strange oaths as long and as patiently as upon the body of a man. And surely, if one stood and watched him, one would presently believe that Storm contended with something for its prey. I can see him now standing in the door with the candle held high up so he could peer into the darkness. He cried out when he saw Abner. Come in, he said. By the Eternal, you are welcome. Storm, said Abner, you in this house. And why not, replied the man. I walk and am overtaken by a snow and you ride and do not escape it. He laughed, showing his twisted yellow teeth, and turned about in the doorway, and we followed him into the house. But there was a fire burning on the hearth and another candle guttering on the table. It was a hall that the door led into, the conventional hall of the great old southern manor house. Wide mahogany doors on either side stood closed in their white frames, a white stairway going up to a broad landing, and a huge fireplace with brass andirons. The place was warm, but musty. It had long been stripped and gutted. It was hung with cobwebs and powdered down with dust. There was a small portmanteau on the table, such as one's father used to carry, of black leather, with little flaps and buckles. And beside it, a blue iron stone jug and a dirty tumbler. The man set down the candle and indicated the jug and the fireplace with a queer, ironical gesture. I offer you the hospitality of the cup and the hearth, Abner, he said. We will take the hearth, Storm, replied Abner, if you please. And we went over to the fireplace, took off our greatcoats, beat out the wet snow, and sat down on the old mahogany settle by the andirons. Every man to the desire of his heart and the custom of his life, said Storm. He took up the jug, turned it on end, and drained its contents into the glass. There was only a little of the liquor left. It was brewed from apples, raw and fiery, and the odor of it filled the place. Then he held up the glass, watching the firelight play in the white-blue liquor. You fill the mind with phantoms, he said, turning the glass about as though it held some curious drug. We swallow you and see things that are not, 
and dead men from their graves. He toyed with the glass, put it on the table, and sat down. Abner, he said, I know the body of a man down to the fiber of his bones, but the mind, it is a land of mystery. We dare not trust it. He paused and rapped the table with his callous fingers. Against another we may be secure, but against himself, what one of us is safe? A man may have no fear of your Hebrew god, Abner, or your Assyrian devil, and yet his own mind may turn against him and fill him full of terror. A man may kill his enemy in secret and hide him, and return to his house secure, and find the dead man sitting in his chair with the wet blood on him and with all his philosophies he cannot eject that phantom from its seat. He will say this thing does not exist, but what avails the word when the thing is there? He got on his feet and leaned over the table with his crooked fingers out before him. I was afraid, and I drew closer to my uncle. This strange old man, straining over the table, peering into the shadows, held me with a gripping fascination. His wiry, faded red hair seemed to rise on his scalp, and I looked to see some horror in its grave clothes appear before him. Abner turned his stern face upon him. It was some time before he spoke. Storm, he said, what do you fear? Fear, cried the old man, his voice rising in a sharp staccato, and he made a gesture outward with his hand. You fear your God, Abner, and I fear myself. But there was something in Abner's voice and in this query launched at him, that changed the man as by some sorcery. He sat down, fingered the glass of liquor, and looked at Abner closely. He did not speak for some time. He appeared to be turning some problem slowly in his mind. There was a lot of mystery here to clear up. We had discovered him by chance, and surely he had received us in the strangest manner. His explanation could not be true that he had come into the house before us on this night, for the house was warm, and it could not have been heated in that time. What was the creature's secret? Why was he here, and who besieged him? These were the things which he must fear to have known, and yet he was glad to see us, glad to find us there in the snow, instead of another whom he feared to find there. And yet we disturbed him, and he was uncertain what to do. He sat beyond the table, and I could see his eyes run over us, and wander off about the hall, and return and glance at the black portmanteau. And while he hung there, between his plans... Abner spoke. Storm, he said. What does all this mean? The old man looked about him swiftly, furtively, I thought. Then he spoke in a voice so low that we could barely hear him. Let me put it this way, Abner, he said. One comes here as you come. He is met as you are met. Well, what happens from all this? A suspicion enters the visitor's mind. There is a peril to the host in that, and he is put to an alternative. He must explain, or he must shoot the guest. Well, he chooses to make his explanation first, and if that fail, there is the other. And, he says, you have done me a service to come in. I am glad to see you. And you say, what do you fear? He answers, robbers. You say, what have you in this house to lose? And he tells you this. Michael Dale owned this house. He was rich. When he was dying, he sat here by this hearth, tapping the bricks with his cane and peering at his worthless son. You remember that son, Abner? He looked with the Jupiter of Elis before the devil got him. 
Wellington, he said, I am leaving you a treasure here. He had been speaking of this estate, and one thought he meant the lands, and so gave the thing no notice. But later one remembered that expression and began to think it over. One recalled where it was that Michael Dale sat and the tapping of his stick. Well, when one is going down, any straw is worth the clutching. One slips into this house and looks. He indicated the brick hearth with a gesture. No, no, it is not there now. The gold is in that portmanteau. He arose, opened the bag, and fumbled in it. Then he came to us with some pieces in his hand. Abner took the gold and examined it carefully by the firelight. They were old pieces, and he rubbed them between his fingers and scraped something from their faces with his thumbnail. Then he handed them back, and Storm cast them into the portmanteau and buckled it together. Then he sat down and drew the stone jug over beside him. Now, Abner, he said, there is this evil about a treasure. It fills one full of fear. You must stand guard over it, and the thing gets on your nerves. The wind in the chimney is a voice, and every noise a footstep. At first one goes about with the weapon in his hand, and then, when he can bear it no more, he shoots at every sound. Abner did not move, and I listened to the man as to a tale of Baghdad. Every mystery was now cleared up. His presence in this house, his fear, the bullet holes, and why he was glad to see us, and yet disturbed that we had come. And I saw what he had been turning in his mind, whether he should trust us with the truth or leave us to our own conclusions. I understood and verified in myself every detail of this story. I should have acted as he did at every step, and I could realize this fear, and how, as the thing possessed him, one might come at last to shoot up the shadows. I looked at the man with a sort of wonder. Abner had been stroking his bronze face with his great sinewy hand, and now he spoke. Storm, he said, Michael Dale's riddle is not the only one that has been read. And he told of Christian Lance's death and the Delphic sentence that had doubtless caused it. You knew old Christian Storm and his curious life? I did, replied Storm, and I knew the man who carried off the knob of the andiron. But how do you say that any man read his riddle, Abner? And how do you know that there was any riddle in it? I took the thing to be an idle taunt. And so did Randolph, said Abner. But you were both wrong. The secret was in that scrawled sentence, and someone guessed it. How do you know that, Abner? Abner did not reply directly to the point. Old Christian loved money, he went on. He would have died before he told where it was hidden and his straining toward the door as though in death he would follow one who had gone out there meant that his secret had been divined, and that his gold had gone that way. You ride to a conclusion on straws, Abner, said Storm, if that is all the proof you have. Well, replied Abner, I have also a theory. And what is your theory? said Storm. It is this, continued Abner. When old Christian wrote... Why don't you look in the cow? He meant a certain thing. There was a row of tallow cakes on a shelf. My theory is that each year when he got the gold from his cattle, he molded it into one of these tallow cakes, turned it out of the crock, and put it on the shelf. And there, in the heart of these tallow cakes, was the old man's treasure. But you tell me that the cakes were there on this shelf when you found old Christian, said Storm. They were, replied Abner. Every one of them said Storm. Every one of them, answered Abner. 
Had any one of them been cut or broken? Not one of them. They were smooth and perfect. Then your first conclusion goes to pieces, Abner. No man carried Christian's money through the door. It's there on the shelf. No, said Abner. It is not there. The man who killed old Christian Lance got the gold out of those cakes of tallow. And now, Abner, cried the man, the bottom of your theory falls. How could one get the gold out of those cakes and leave them perfect? I will tell you that, replied Abner. There was a kettle on the crane and a crock beside the hearth, and every cake of tallow on the shelf was white. They had been remolded. Randolph did not see that, but I did. Storm got on his feet. Then you do not believe this explanation, Abner, that the gold came from the hearth. I do not, replied Abner, and his voice was deep and level. There is tallow on these coins. I saw Abner glance at the iron poker and watch Storm's hand. But the old man did not draw his weapon. He laughed noiselessly, twisting his crooked mouth. You're right, Abner, he said. It is Christian gold, and this tale is a lie. But you are wrong in your conclusion. Lance was not killed by a little man like I am. He was killed by a big man like you. He paused and leaned over, resting his hands on the table. The man who killed him did not guess that riddle, Abner. Put the evidences together. Lance was tied into his chair before the assassin killed him. Why? That was to threaten him with death unless he told where his gold was hidden. Well, Lance would not tell that, but the assassin found it out by chance. He stooped to put the poker into the fire to heat it and torture Christian. The cakes of tallow were on a hanging shelf against the whitewashed chimney. As the assassin rose, he struck this shelf with his shoulder, and one of these tallow cakes fell and burst on the hearth. Then he killed Christian with a blow of the heated poker. I know that because the hair about the wound was scorched. You saw a good deal in that house, Abner, but did you see a crease in the chimney where the shelf smote it, and the mark of a man's shoulder on the whitewash? And that shoulder, Abner, he raised his hand above his head, it was as high as yours. There was silence, and as the two men looked thus at each other, there was a sound as of something padding about the house outside. For a moment I did not understand these sounds. Then I realized that the wind was rising and clumps of snow falling from the trees. But to another in that house, these sounds had no such explanation. Then a thing happened. One of the mahogany doors entering the hall leapt back, and a man stood there with a pistol in his hand. And in all my life, I have never seen a creature like him. There was everything fine and distinguished in his face, but the face was a ruin. It was a loathsome and hideous ruin. Made for the occupancy of a god, the man's body was the dwelling of a devil. I do not mean a clean and vicious devil, but one low and bestial that wallowed and gorged itself with sins. And there was another thing in that face that, to understand, one must have seen it. There was terror, but no fear. It was as though the man advanced against a thing that filled him full of horror, but he advanced with courage. He had a spirit in him that saw and knew the aspect and elements of danger, but it could not be stampeded into flight. I heard Abner say, Dale, like one who pronounces the name of some extraordinary thing. And I heard Storm say, Mon Dieu, with a teaspoonful of laudanum in him, he walks. The creature did not see us. He was listening to the sounds outside, and he started for the door. You there, he bellowed. Again, damn you. 
Well, I'll get you this time. I'll hunt you to hell. And his drunken voice rumbled off into obscenities and oaths. He flung the door open and went out. His weapon thundered, and by it and the drunken shouting we could track him. He seemed to move north as though lured that way. We stood and listened. He goes toward the river, said Abner. It is God's will. Then far off there was a last report of the weapon, and a great, bellowing cry that shuddered through the forest. That night over the fire, Storm told us how he had come in from the snow and found Dale drunk and fighting the ghost of Christian Lance, how he listened to his story and slipped the drug into his glass, and how he got him hidden when we came on the promise to keep his secret, and how he had fenced with Abner seeing that Abner suspected him. But it was the failure of his drug that vexed him. It would put a brigadier and his horse to sleep, that much, if it were pure. I shall take ten drops tomorrow night and see. It doesn't take a vivid imagination to picture some gothic mystery taking place on the campus of West Virginia Wesleyan College, with its slanting gables, stately crenellated brick buildings, and sharp white steeples. Like many campuses, it has its ghost stories, like one surrounding Agnes Howard Hall, the oldest in-use women's residence hall in the United States. Agnes Howard was an 18-year-old student who died suddenly of illness in 1917, and rumors abound of paranormal happenings in her namesake building. It is history that seems ripe for a gothic tale of its own. The 5,000-person town in which Wesleyan is nestled, Buckhannon, is cozy but lively, and its domed courthouse looks like something Abner might have testified in, though it was built after Abner's time, in 1901, just a few years after Melville Davison Post broke onto the literary scene. It's on a chilly autumn afternoon that I meet with Dr. Lynn Linder outdoors at Buchanan's Jawbone Park. Skateboarders zoom about, and vinyl banners over our heads honoring the town's military veterans flap in the breeze. The old brick buildings nearby feel incongruous with our present moment, a place out of time. Perhaps thinking about time is why I want to know when in history the detective genre began to take shape. Luckily, Dr. Linder, who teaches at Wesleyan, is the right person to talk to about that. It's clear from our conversation that she's pretty passionate about the subject, so today she takes us back to where it all began. Part of the reason why the genre is relatively new is actually the police force and the figure of the detective is relatively new. Most, you know, official police force in the United States didn't begin into major cities like Boston and New York about late 1830s, early 1840s. In Britain, really the sort of London Metropolitan Police Force wasn't established until 1829, and then the detective police force wasn't until the 1840s. So it wasn't really until the mid-19th century that there was even such a thing as as a detective. And what's interesting, I think, is across the pond in Britain, the sort of emergence of that was really helped along by Charles Dickens. He was fascinated by the detective figure and he actually in late 1840s 1850 
1851 went basically on what we think is like sort of a ride along uh, today with a police officer. He met the police detectives, he shadowed them, and he published fictionalized stories of their accounts in his various magazine, Household Words and others. And one of the first detectives in British fiction was Inspector Bucket in Bleak House. So, and then Wilkie Collins, another British author in The Moonstone, Sergeant Cuff, is the famous detective in that novel. And so in the 19th century, there was both these amateur detectives like Dupin in the Poe short fiction, and then also these professional detectives. And then also in the United States, The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green is a novel published in 1878, which was wildly popular and not much read today. And it featured uh, the narrator's an amateur detective. And then there's also a professional detective, Grice. And the novel was actually used in the late 19th century, early 20th century in Yale Law School to discuss circumstantial evidence. (laughs) So it's sort of really interesting, I think, with detective fiction, the way in which it sort of emerged out of the culture and then became a reflection of that and, and have sort of ever since (laughs) been in conversation. It's always a cultural dialogue, I guess. You mentioned the amateur detective and the professional detective. And, well, I guess in the most basic sense, amateur is somebody who's not getting paid for it and a professional is somebody who is. But is there any difference genre-wise that shows up between the two or do they mostly follow the same conventions? I think it definitely changes in the... 19th century, I mean, Sherlock Holmes is a perfect example. Poe's amateur detective is the same. In those, the amateur is seen to outwit the professional police. But in the ones I mentioned of the detective police and like Dickens and such, the official detective is the one who solves the crime in the amateur. So there's this interesting sort of, I say it's not uniform in that way. And then it definitely changes like in the 1920s, we have the golden age of fiction, Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers and others. Do you get then to... While Golden Age was happening in Britain, the, in, around the same time period, you get the hard-boiled detective fiction, the private investigator, a la Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, and those figures. And they're very much, you know, they're still, they're not the amateur, they're the professional, but they're still outside of the police force. And the police detectives are often cast in those stories as potentially corrupt Definitely the private investigators have the advantage. But then as you go further on in like the 1950s through the 80s, the police procedural sort of throws all that, a wrench in that, I guess, as well. And you start seeing the inner workings of the police force and they become the heroes or the protagonists of the story. Do you think that in modern times then that the amateur detective model has become more outmoded, that we really are more geared toward these police procedural where the detective is embedded in the department and that's what they do? No, actually. I mean, what I would say is in the late 20th century, 21st century, detective fiction has exploded and expanded. I was telling my students, I'm actually teaching a detective fiction course at Wesleyan this semester. And today, as we're nearing the end of the semester, I was encouraging them and saying, if you liked any of these works, if you're interested in sort of the detective fiction, you can find a sort of sub-sub-genre 
of detective fiction that will almost fit any interest. There are just so many, if you're interested in the professional detective, as you said, someone that's embedded with either a paid professional or inside the police, you can find a plethora. I'm thinking of like the Tony Hillerman series that has, um, they're the Navajo tribal policemen, Joe Leaphorn and Jim Chi. Just really fascinating uh, novels about the Navajo tribal police force. So they're an example. But then you also have amateur detectives just everywhere as well. So I think there's definitely something, for, a little bit of something for everyone. That's neat. I had no idea it was that diverse of a genre. It really is. It's interesting that um, I sort of was tracing the sort of development of detective fiction and definitely the private eye who also came out of the culture and the Pinkerton agency in Chicago, which I believe it was Dashiell Hammett worked for. Those sorts of new types of detectives definitely emerged, but the amateur was a figure that it was at the very beginnings of the genre and still remains a figure today. I think that's a perfect way to ask you what some of the tropes and motifs of the detective genre are. And if there are too many, because it's so diverse at this point, then at least say more the amateur detective of the kind that Abner is. One notion or sort of idea convention of detective fiction that emerged from the golden age in the 1920s was this idea of fair play. It sort of goes with the whodunit type of mystery that the reader had to have the same set of clues. There basically had to be the opportunity for the reader to be able to solve the crime. And so a short story or a a detective novel would be deemed unfair, I guess for lack of a better word, if, you know, it sort of broke this pact. During that time, Ronald Knox had the Ten Commandments of detective fiction. And so one of them was that the murderer or the criminal could not be someone that we had access to their thoughts. And they also had to be someone that we knew at the beginning of the story. So sort of these list of of rules, if you will. But of course, the best purveyors of detective fiction broke these rules. So Agatha Christie, for example, in Who Murdered Roger Ackroyd, the narrator is a murderer. But yet somehow it works. So I think that's one thing, uh, sort of one of the conventions in amateur, too, is having those clues available to readers. It's not a fast and steady rule, but often in amateur detective fiction, particularly from the 19th century, we'll have a friend, sort of Watson figure, narrating. You don't typically, I think in earlier detective fiction, have a first person from the detective. Third person, narration, sure. And you sort of dip in to all the characters' thoughts or, you know, a certain amount of the characters. One thing Uncle Abner definitely doesn't fit is a convention is like the armchair detective. That's definitely one mode that the detective that is just, you know, sitting in their armchair basically and can just read the newspaper of a, of a crime <laughs> and, and be able to deduce who it was. But one of the conventions I think definitely that you see in the riddle is the, the stoic, silent way that, that Uncle Abner seems to just, you know, observe and not... Is it Randolph, right, that he I, calls a leaky pitch, pitcher? Squire Randolph, yeah. 
in the story. Uh, so this person of few words that sort of sits back and observes and doesn't show their hand. Yeah, he, I think he does in a lot of situations sort of let the criminal betray themselves when he's in a situation where he's actively interviewing someone. I know the riddle is a little bit different because unlike many where he's directly confronting the person responsible for the crime, in this case he is talking to someone else who knows what happened but nevertheless wasn't directly involved with the crime. So that's fairly unique among the Abner stories, but he still kind of holds his holds his knowledge back like you point out. The riddle, I think, fits a little bit in a way to that idea of the locked room or the impossible crime. You know, the riddle of where (laughs) the gold is hidden points to that sort of idea that it seems as if there's no answer. And so I think that's also one of the conventions or tropes, particularly of the amateur detective like Dupin or Holmes, or I think Uncle Abner as well, is the sort of superior knowledge or way in which he deduces where the gold was hidden, solves the crime. It is then revealed at the end in sort of the way that as a reader, I think you're meant to react like, whoa, how, how did he figure that out? There's also, I think, sort of fitting that genre too at the conclusion. One, there's a twist often, particularly in short detective fiction, and then also the recounting of the murder or the crime is definitely very frequent trope in the fiction is that the detective figure that goes through and shows the reader and lays out how the clues fit together and how they figured out who done it. Okay, so sort of the idea that the crime rarely happens in front of the audience. It's always something that's sort of backtracked through by the detective for the audience. It depends, I think, on the sort of sub-sub-genre, if you will, of detective fiction, but definitely in the mode of the whodunit, unlike the suspense or the thriller where the detective figure is in danger. Almost, if you say, sort of two plotting methods in detective fiction, one would be, which I think the riddle, riddle and others fit, is more of the whodunit. There's these sort of two stories. It's the story that already happened is the actual crime or the murder, and that happens before the book opens. And then the whole plot is going from effect back to cause, trying to figure out who done it, putting it together. That's the story we have that we're reading. And then more in the the suspense type, that's when we start maybe from the cause and then move forward to the effect. And so the thrill, I guess, of reading there was driving the plot isn't curiosity like in the whodunit, but it's you're on the edge of your seat, suspense, what will happen next? And the detective figure could be in danger as well. Speaking of some of these differences, Are there any real differences between detective fiction and mystery fiction in general? I guess that's something I've never really understood, aside from the presence of a detective. My very scholarly answer is not really. (laughs) I I would say that really that is often what distinguishes it. And even if you read in scholarship, there's often interchangeable terms. So sometimes a lot of crime fiction, mystery fiction, obviously. I do think in detective fiction, right, I mean, the main distinction is there is the detective figure, which does then, I think, change sometimes the focus of the story or the plot and that you do get the inner workings of that figure. So it might be something like an amateur detective. What steps do they take? 
how do they logically deduce? Are they using deductive and inductive reasoning to figure it out? And then with the either private investigator, professional detective fiction or police procedurals, you also get that focus on the inner workings of that organization. So sort of that that glimpse into another world is what we're looking for. Right, right. I mean, you can see the, you know, similar, I mean, how many Law & Order series are there, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I truly don't know the answer to that question. Well, let's talk about your other passion, your passion for the gothic. And this particular Abner mystery, out of all of the 22 that Post eventually wrote, is especially heavy on the gothic atmosphere. There's a grisly murder, there's a mysterious snowstorm, an abandoned mansion, and this dissolute aristocratic family that lived there, used to live there. Can you tell us a little bit about these elements and how structurally they sometimes sort of cross-pollinate into detective fiction? Now I'm getting really (laughs) going back sort of just even the term gothic, just thinking about that, you know, it derives from the goths. So the dramatic invaders that came and ransacked Rome and ushered in what, you know, used to call the dark ages. And so even that term, the gothic, always refers to the sort of oppositional force, the sort of counterweight to rational classical order. So it makes sense to me that you find gothic tropes and conventions in detective fiction because the detective figure often is this sort of embodiment of logic and and ration you know we're we're, we're, ration rationality (laughs) it's been a long day you know, we think of Sherlock Holmes, that he's going back and saying, oh, yes, I'm just using this logic. I take the dead body and I follow the steps back. And so the Gothic is just the other side of the coin of that. If we have this logic, it's sort of that fear of what lies beneath. If we're in the Enlightenment, sort of post-Enlightenment world where science, logic, reason can discover, you know, the meaning for everything can explain everything. Okay, we're in a safe world. Well, what about the fears? It's tied to the crimes and murders. I mean, thinking of who would commit murder, this act of killing another human being. We think it defies ration, rationality. Gee, I did it again. Logic. <laughs> You know, I think the sort of Gothic elements in English Gothic fiction proper from the 1780s to the 1820s, particularly at the end of the 18th century, we see the French Revolution. There was a lot of fear in Britain of, wait, we have this great government. We are this enlightened society. But what could happen if we're sort of overtaken by these mobs and these cultural fears? And they then manifest in these sort of Gothic fictions where we have I always tell my students we have monks and nuns behaving badly in English Gothic fiction (laughs) because they are often, they are set purposefully, as I mentioned, in these dark ages. They're set usually in the Middle Ages, Spain, France, these Catholic countries, this sort of way in which the British at the time, I think British writers were exploring their own fears or their own culture, but it was a way to project it. It was a way to deflect it onto an earlier time. They're different from us. They're not Protestant and sort of the other, and they could project all those things, but really they were just representing their own fears. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I don't normally delve into personal anecdote, but when it comes to Uncle Abner, It was right as the pandemic was starting, March 2020. I remember picking this up 
kind of looking for something that we could do at the council, some programming that could respond to what was going on and the fear and anxiety that we all felt, but not in a direct way. We were already doing that with some of our other programming, and I thought, well, what can we do that still helps people but is more of an outlet than than a confrontation with this? And I start reading the Abner stories, and I was like, man, it feels really good to be reading these right now because Abner represents a moral absolute. He's a comforting presence. He's someone who's going to set things to right. Here in 2020, this over 100-year-old piece of fiction was doing that for me right at that particular time. Definitely. And that's why I think I said, too, and I totally agree, is that the gothic fits right in with the detective fiction and also why you said the detective figure Um, him or herself is so comforting because you get that resolution. Logic, good and right, triumph over irrationality and panic and evil. I mean, I'm thinking of even Murders in the Rue Morgue. At the conclusion of that, it's a grisly double murder that is being investigated. And it turns out, which my students were not too happy to find out at the end, that it's an orangutan that committed the crime, which they did not think uh, was very plausible, and they were sort of upset about it. But we talked a lot about, was that a way to resolve the story that didn't indict humanity for these grisly murders? Do you think that that sense of resolution within the genre has changed through the decades? You know, reading Raymond Chandler, books like The Long Goodbye and things like that, you get to the end of those some of that detective fiction and you don't feel a whole, whole lot of resolution. No, it is very, very messy. Uh, Raymond Chandler was exactly where my mind went to. Fiction from the 1920s, 30s of hard-boiled detective fiction, The Private Eye, definitely had that messy ending. And actually Chandler criticized the golden age detective fiction writers for tying everything in a bow. I mean, he saw that sort of type of detective fiction as unrealistic. You know, we call it now like the cozy detective fiction. It does make you feel good. (laughs) The sort of gritty, hard-boiled from the 30s in the United States. Yeah, definitely things were not resolved at the end. Uh, You see that in police procedurals in the 50s and 60s and 70s as well. There is that sense of, I mean, sometimes the criminals brought to justice and right wins out, but other times it doesn't. Those that break the law often do get away with it. All of the threads are not always tied up. So returning to this gothic imagery, can you give me some examples? We named some at the beginning. Was I pretty on point there? You definitely, definitely had it. One thing that I think you had mentioned as well, the fact that we have the sort of aristocratic family in decline, in disarray. I mean, you also have the fear of descent into madness, which is definitely a gothic trope and tied to that dichotomy that we were talking about earlier between madness and and reason, the sort of conscious and unconscious. But definitely the crumbling manor house, the aristocratic castle that is falling down is very much a prominent trope from the origins of gothic fiction through today. And I think of things such as Fall of the House of Usher, by Edgar Allan Poe, sort of the quintessential short fiction example of that. 
that embodies sort of symbolic significance of that is tied to the culture of the decline of the aristocracy, both in Europe, Britain, and the United States. The change, I think, also in agrarian society, mainly to an industrial society, population booms, you see the rise of the middle class, and just changes from like a system of patronage to a meritocracy, right? That idea of this sort of, I don't want to say shunny of the upper class, you know, the, but saying like this sort of older way of life needs to die. Was there anything else notable to you about how this particular story was constructed? You get sucked into post-writing the gothic atmosphere. The tension shifts. I was talking earlier about the whodunit and the curiosity, right? You get that, particularly with the riddle and you're drawn in and I feel like that question is as a reader is percolating sort of in your mind about where the goal what what is the look to the cattle is that what the why don't the you why? look in the cow I think is the line <laughs> why don't you look in the cow so it's sort of in the back of your mind but how he structures it you get into this other narrative. You're on horseback with the two of them in this snowstorm and you start worrying about their safety. Are they going to survive? And the way it's structured, it really diverts you from that original question. And then I do think it's done fairly well at the end then where, you know, it all comes together and you do get that, this sort of twist ending, the surprise ending of sometimes really great short fiction and short detective fiction in particular. There's a number of sources that list Uncle Abner as the best amateur detective in American detective fiction since Poe uh, sort of invented the genre, if you will. Who's on the top of your detective list? I mean, I was speaking about before, and I really believe that there's sort of uh, something for everyone in contemporary detective fiction. Uh, Agatha Christie is one of my favorites. I do also like Agatha Christie's short short fiction as well. I, I might have mentioned earlier, Witness for the Prosecution and Miss Marple Tells a Story are two fun short fiction. I had mentioned Hillerman's novels earlier. Alexander McCall Smith's series, The Number One Lady Detective Agency, is quite a fun read that's actually set in Botswana. And there was a televised series of it several years ago. Young adult fiction, what I really like is The Beekeeper's Apprentice by Laurie King. And it's fun. I guess I like it because it's set in Britain and Sherlock Holmes has supposedly retired and now he's a beekeeper. And so Mary Russell is this female detective and sort of bonds with with Sherlock. And then I also really like Jonathan Kellerman's novels featuring Alex Delaware, who's a forensic psychologist. So it is interesting too, like I mentioned in a lot of these detective fiction genres, particularly the contemporary ones, that you get a lot of different focuses. And so if you're really interested, for example, in forensics, there's a lot of different novels that you can read if, if you know, you're interested Navajo culture. There's, you know, the Hillerman novels. So there's almost a detective for everyone. <laughs> there's a detective for everyone aptly sums up the flexibility of this genre, which encompasses any landscape and every kind of human being. Melville Davison Post himself wrote that the mystery detective story may be structurally so excellent and its workmanship so good that it is the equal of any form of literature. If there is any broad lesson to be learned from the humanities field, 
Perhaps it is that anything that people do or make or talk about is worth studying. No matter how seemingly insignificant, everything we do or partake of as people is part of a larger tapestry. When you break them down, the humanities, which traditionally encompass history, philosophy, language and linguistics, the study of religion, ethics, archaeology, and jurisprudence, to name a few, sound a lot like the specialties of fiction's most famous detectives, who call upon all of the habits, skills, and motives of mankind to perform their work. And real-life practitioners in this field, from Dr. Linder to many of the scholars we consult in this podcast and beyond, are detectives too, in their own ways. Using analysis, critical thinking, and creativity to unwind one of the greatest mysteries of them all. What it means to be human. A special thank you to Dr. Lynn Linder for joining us on a cold, blustery day in the park. For more episodes of Mysterious Mountains, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit wvhumanities.org for links to our podcast page and more content. You can also follow the West Virginia Humanities Council on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The West Virginia Humanities Council is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The council is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit supported by the NEH, the state of West Virginia, contributions from the private sector, and people like you. Its statewide mission is to support a vigorous educational program in the humanities across West Virginia. This audio production of Mysterious Mountains is copyright 2021 by the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme song is Appalachian Impressions Movement 2, A Train Through Snowy Thurmond by Matthew Jackford, used with permission. <laughs>